Hello, and welcome back to the Frame Lab podcast. Hey, George. Hey, Gil. Well, George, this is episode 15, and we started this podcast a year ago now, a whole year ago. That's amazing, 15 already. Yeah, I mean, we could have done more, but we try to make ours more quality than quantity and capture some of this important stuff for people to listen to whenever they want to not overload them with too many thoughts. Well, now that you're working with McClatchy, uh, you'll have quality and quantity both. <laughs> Maybe. So that's the news that I have today. I have now become the California opinion editor of McClatchy Newspapers, which includes the Sacramento Bee, the Fresno Bee, the Merced Sun Star, the Modesto Bee, and the San Luis Obispo Tribune. And so I'm back in journalism, which is where I started from in the beginning. It's been a 17-year break from that, but I'm really excited to be getting back into that um, at a time like this, and I think the podcast has really been something that has helped me to realize how much I missed being out there and, and talking to the public and helping people understand what's going on in the world. Well, um, you're doing a lot more with McClatchy than you did before even, <laughs> and uh, that's keeping you very busy, and that's great. Well, yeah, this did start last year with us writing an op-ed for the Sacramento Bee about how Trump uses Twitter, and so... Um, it's kind of like a full circle in many ways. And appropriately today, our topic is about things that the media can do, rules or processes that the media can adopt to help defeat propaganda and make sure that the truth triumphs over the lies and the falsehoods. And we've got a few ideas. Some people are familiar with them, like the Truth Sandwich. Our last episode was entirely about the Truth Sandwich. But we've got a few other ideas. And what we want to do is go through some of those ideas, talk about them. And maybe if listeners have some ideas, too, that we're not talking about or mentioning, they can share those with us and we can incorporate them into our further thinking. Great. And I think the place that's the best place to start is with the idea of framing first. Um, frames are there in your brain. They are the structures that you use to understand whatever is happening right around the time that the frame is in your brain. And uh, everything is understood in terms of that framing. And therefore, whoever frames first has an amazing advantage, no matter you know what the situation is. Now, one of the things that uh, you've mentioned about lying is banning the lies from the headlines. Yes, that's proposed rule number one. And that's very important because you read headlines first and headlines frame. And even headlines, headline writers may not understand the power that they have in writing headlines because what you're doing in a headline is telling people how to frame what they're about to read. And that's a very important responsibility that headline writers bear. Definitely. And I think there are a lot of people, and certainly I think all of us can relate to reading a headline but not reading a story. When you're scanning through social media or the newspaper, when you're skimming, 
or when you look at TV and you have the sound off and you just see a headline or a chyron up there, whatever that says, even if you're not interested, even if you don't dig deeper, that's information that gets into your mind and it has an impression on your mind. And so what we're saying is that the, the headline, the chyron, even the, the tweet or the social media post these days is prime real estate. And there needs to be more thought put into which words get that prime real estate, which words reach people, whether or not they read the story. And for you, that's about the importance of framing first and deciding who gets to frame a story first, especially at a time when uh, we have people and political operators doing their best to frame things that are not true Mm -hmm. uh, and to frame a counter reality. And can you explain why the the framing first works the way it does in the brain? Sure. Uh, When you are putting forth a frame, what you're doing is activating uh, neural circuitry in your brain. And uh, once you activate it strongly, uh, it affects what happens with the other circuitry coming in that's being activated. So framing first matters because it is going to affect whatever else is going to be coming into your brain. I mean, it's, you know, simple neuroscience. There are a lot of good examples out there of that working, but we had a pretty interesting one this week when Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer met with Donald Trump in the White House. And that did not go so well for Trump unless you're a Trump supporter, a staunch Trump supporter, and you saw a completely different thing on your screen than everybody else did. But Pelosi walked in almost with a ready-made hashtag that she dropped on Trump in the middle of their meeting. And he took the bait, and it ended up being that Trump shutdown, which is what she said to him, became exactly the frame that he adopted. Trump went on to say that if there was a a big government shutdown that harmed the economy, that he would take full credit for it and that he would be proud of it. And if you watch that interaction, the full interaction, you see in there Pelosi deliberately dump that frame into his mind. And it's a remarkable thing that she did because from her perspective and from the perspective of most people in the country, a shutdown of the government is irresponsible. But Trump took it as a show of power, and she got him to take it as a show of power, which would still, having framed it first in terms of irresponsibility, uh, get most people in the country to think of Trump as being willing to be irresponsible. And that was really masterful Mm -hmm. on her part. I mean, we do a lot of criticizing of Democrats uh, for not framing, for not being as aware as they should of their communication, but that entire episode, everything that was going on in that room seemed designed to elicit the eventual effect that it got, right? You don't show up to a televised uh, discussion with a president, any president, much less Trump, without having a game plan. And while I think people would never admit to that, it seemed to me that that there was a plan there and that it, it, it succeeded. That's right. I mean, basically, she got Trump to own irresponsibility. And so by putting that frame on on the government shutdown, the Trump shutdown, right, she was able to get him to respond to that frame. And in responding to that frame, he owned it. He didn't deny that there would be a Trump shutdown, but he ended up 
talking himself into being responsible for it, which is a bad position to be in. And so when you introduce an idea and provide a framework for which people to view a conversation or an issue or a reality, then that's a lot of power to have, especially if it's mass power over millions of people. And so when media organizations or uh, reporters or even social media influencers put the lie in the headline, they are ceding that power of framing first to the opposite of the truth, to the lie. Not only that, but Nancy did something even more remarkable because she did it at the Christmas season. A government shutdown means all government services, including the post office, which is delivering your, your Christmas presents and the Christmas cards. You know, I mean, just sort of imagine a government shutdown around Christmas. I mean, you're talking about a Grinch. And she was wearing that very Christmassy red coat that went viral. You know, there's a picture of her walking out of the Oval Office looking like the cat that ate the canary. Right. And she did. So the frames were there were very effective for Democrats. But back to the lies. Um, you can't put the lie in the headline if you want to do the work of the truth. You know, you, you are doing a disservice to um, readers, to democracy, to the public good by repeating the lie. But I think there are reasons that people do it. And they're not intending to be the servants of propaganda. But a lot of times when, when Trump says something interesting or outrageous or untrue, the, the way that you get into that conversation and, and rise to the top of whatever search engine or, or hashtag or conversation you're in is by tapping into that language, is by saying whatever Trump said in order that people who are searching for that or who are also obsessing over those words will see, recognize, and um, you know, promote or like or retweet or click on whatever it is that you are trying to tell them. And so there's like a built-in incentive, especially now in the era of search engines and algorithms and uh, search engine op optimization, to take whatever was the most salacious frame or the most outrageous new frame and repeat it in order to gain the uh, credit or value of being seen as first on a, on a topic. And so you have two competing issues. One, a duty to the truth and a duty to understand the power of framing first. On the other hand, I think you have a an incentive to just repeat whatever was said because that might get you something out there in the in the Twitter sphere. Well, I have a recommendation for uh, headline writers who want to avoid that situation. Uh, it's in the title of a book I wrote called "Don't Think of an Elephant." That is, uh, if you take a truth and you say in your headline, "Trump denies," and then there's the truth. What you've done is tell people the truth. And that's important. The lie didn't go into the headline. The truth did. One thing people have been using is this without evidence, comma. Trump says something, which is a little closer to the truth sandwich, but still, I think, not as powerful as not putting the lie into the headline. So we do see some experimentation out there. You know, like, for instance, without evidence, Trump says that there are men on the moon, right? So mm -hmm. it's an attempt to signal to people at the beginning of the headline that without evidence. 
but then it still repeats whatever the the statement the false statement is and so it's imperfect in, imperfect in that way the other thing we're seeing is for twitter accounts like looking at UNBC news who insist on just repeating the lie word for word with no context they're starting to get roasted and criticized heavily on places like twitter and facebook people are starting to realize that repeating the lie is not an acceptable format for informing people about what happened. And so in a way that's kind of inspiring to see that people are sort of becoming linguistic activists in terms of saying, no, that's not an acceptable way to communicate that. That's a lie and you shouldn't repeat the lie. So in a way we are starting to see that that basic idea catch on. But again, uh, the uh, idea of don't think of an elephant, which makes you think of an elephant, uh, is Trump denies, and then you'd say what well, the truth is. And you always get the truth out there and the fact that Trump denied it. And this is, and you don't have to use his language to say that. Mm-hmm. And this is important in headlines. It's important with pointing that out. And it's important with getting people to frame things in terms of the truth instead of in tra- terms of the lie. And this is important. If you're f- talking about framing, and you're getting the idea of what, what it means to frame first. You can say Trump denies and then put in the truth which makes you frame it first. So rule number one is ban the lie from the headline, the tweet, the chyron, whatever, and always put the truth first. That's not something that we've never said before. We've said that in different ways. But now we're proposing that as a, as a rule going forward, as good practice, as, as a truth hygiene. Another rule we're proposing is separate news from distractions. And this kind of goes back to your original analysis last year about how Trump uses Twitter. Yeah. I mean, Trump uses Twitter to sometimes frame first, but often to distract, to just take people away from what the real issue is and to give some irrelevant issue that people will, will talk about that will be in the news, etc., and it's important that the media not buy into the distractions, that they let the distractions go, that they talk about what the real issues are, uh, you know, and if it's a distraction, you put it later on after you've discussed, you know, the important truths of the day, uh, and you discuss it as a distraction. Yeah, that is, you can point out that there was an attempt to... Um, make you not pay attention to this, to this truth. That is, it, it was an distraction. Here's what the distraction was, and you can see why, if you're paying attention to that, you're not going to pay attention to what's important. Yeah, and this is when Trump does some kind of petty or clearly uh, non-sequitur thing because there's some other big story that's just come out that he doesn't want people to be reading about. And especially earlier this year, we saw a lot of this. Every time some new shoe was about to drop in the Mueller investigation or the Stormy Daniels stuff, Trump would go on the attack against somebody and pick some new fight to suck up all the oxygen and, and keep the media writing about his his tweets and also just his other behaviors and developments um, instead of the main story. I do think, though, as the Mueller investigation finally gained steam, we've moved into a period where things are happening at a, at a rapid clip, um, that it'll be harder and harder for Trump to distract from 
the news just with uh, tweets or you know silly things. He, my fear is he might need bigger and bigger distractions that could take us into some some dangerous territory. So it's important to step back and get a sense of what is the actual news that's happening that's important versus what is Trump trying to use his office to gin up or his Twitter account to gin up in order to keep everybody busy and distracted by those things. Right. And if you're in the media, it's important to pay attention to the difference between a distraction and the really important news at hand and what the truths are and why the truths have to be out there first, always, and never be distracted from it. So separate news from distractions. And understandably, we can't, we're not right here spelling out exactly what that means for news organizations. We're giving a basic idea. But I think what we're proposing overall is that reporters and editors and others charged with putting out the news have a conversation about these things Mm -hmm. and think about is there a way to instill some practices that account for how propaganda works and how our brains work and how our brains respond to things like false information and too much information. You know, the, the whole effect of jamming the news with so many things that nobody can pay attention to uh, anything or knows what to believe is an old school fascist tactic. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be on guard against these things. And if we're not accounting for them, then we're not really doing our, our duty uh, in terms of protecting the truth. There's a sense in which newsrooms ought to have a list of principles in large type on, the, on a wall somewhere. Uh, you know, just to, so that you, people remember all these things to avoid, to know what to avoid and to know what to do first. And, um, you know, the idea of framing first is a profound idea. That is, people in the, in the news media uh, don't necessarily do it. They often, uh, you know, just take whatever is given to them as a quote, and then they quote it. And they think their job is simply to quote what's given to them rather than to frame it first. Yeah, but we, And we've never dealt with a situation like this in this country, at least not in recent decades, where someone is, I don't think we've ever dealt with somebody who's doing what Trump is doing. And, you know, seeing the president of the United States have zero respect for reality. Um, you know, his people will tell you that things that he clearly said on video or on audio, he didn't say them, you know. So this is a very dangerous new phase of this, and, and that requires a different approach than may have worked in past years. There's another principle that I think is important to recognize, that facts are not isolated. Facts do not just come, you know, just uh, by themselves with no past and no consequences for the future. A fact is made important partly by its, its relevance. Its relevance has to do with what is true at present and what was true in the past. So that when you give a history of the fact, that is a relevant history of why the fact is important now, what you're doing is doing a framing that is crucial for understanding the nature of that fact. Moreover, facts are not just true now, they have consequences. And it's important to see what those consequences are for the future. So that facts are not isolated and they have a structure. 
And it's important for people in the media to own up to that structure, just point out what the, what the, fa- what the past was, why it built up to this fact. Here we have this new fact that's come in, but it's not utterly new because of its past. And not only that, it's not isolated. It has consequences. It has various possible futures. This is important to see that you can't just say a fact in isolation. Facts don't exist in isolation. So that is the rule of separating news from distractions. And also, you're you're saying basically we have to understand the structures of facts. And that goes to another idea we were talking about, which is that in addition to knowing how the law works and how news writing works, we also have to know a bit about how the brain works. And it's not clear that that's something that's really studied uh, in journalism at all. And now is a good time to understand a bit of that. I feel like on the advertising side or on the, the, the side where you try to get clicks and reads, people understand or are paying more attention to what is getting attention. Right, you have search engine optimization trying to tap into what's popular, what's working, what, where's the audience at. But there is also, you know, and that's all for kind of getting clicks and making revenue, getting readership, getting, you know, more readers. But we also have to account for the duty to the truth in that. If it's all dollars and cents, and if the lie is more interesting and exciting and alluring for an entertainment purpose than the truth then we're not really on a very good path here into the future, especially when the uh, artificial intelligences start uh, taking a greater role in what we see and what we do. Well, I I think Les Moonves, the former head of CBS, uh, said it best when he was quoting Trump on CBS regularly. He said, it may not be very very good for the country, but it's great for CBS Mm -hmm. because we get lots of listeners this way and lots of advertisers. Why is cognitive science important for people who communicate for a living, and what is it in a nutshell? Cognitive science is the study of how the brain works and how uh, thought works in general. It includes things like framing and how framing works. It includes uh, such things as metaphorical thought, which is largely unconscious, and unconscious thought in general, how unconscious thought works, how it is possible to uh, activate and use thought that is there unconsciously and to man- for, for manipulating people and to avoid that, if possible, in the media, but to uh, recognize when politicians and other leaders are trying to manipulate people in that way. Speaking of the brain, images have a huge impact on people. They communicate very quickly. People see an image, they get an idea. They can be a fully formed idea. And so another of the rules we are proposing that people think about is limiting the Trump photos. I don't know about you, but it seems like every political story you try to read or if you scroll through Twitter or look at Facebook, every single photo is a photo of Donald Trump. That's one of the ways in which he manipulates the media. And it's important. Uh, photos of leaders are very important. Uh, leaders know how to pre- you know, manipulate that, present themselves in photos. They don't have pictures of you know, Donald Trump picking his nose. Uh, 
you know, or doing, you know, other, you know, or looking cross-eyed or something. They've got some of the hair blowing that are not flattering. Well, we have some of those that are not flattering, but that's part of a joke. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that's not a serious aspect of it. But uh, I think the, the point is that when you have an image uh, of someone in a high office, uh, that gives that person more power. It means that, uh, you know, that image crowds out other images, that that person can dress for the images, can get, you know, his press people, uh, you know, providing images to the press and to the media, can, um, you know, set up stage, stage, do stagecraft for the images and so on. Uh, that is, that person can manipulate the way uh, people see him or her in, in their brains. And that's a very important thing. How you see somebody matters. I think in the frequency you see them too. You know, dictators often take mm-hmm. the step of putting large portraits of themselves everywhere to make themselves seem all powerful and ubiquitous. And in this case, what we have is almost like every photo editor at every single publication in the world deciding that Donald Trump's going to be the photo that you are forced to see when you see this story. And I just think it's got a sort of the quantity of it. And I don't think it's deliberate. I think everyone's just kind of doing it out of a, a reflex is think about the photo. Does it have to be Trump's mug? Does it have to be just Trump himself giving the thumbs up or doing some other silly thing. There are people, there are a lot of other people, there are billions of other people in the world who could be in those photos. There are activists, there are opposition politicians, there are children, there are immigrants, there are people, there are a lot of people whose story is being told right now. And so Trump doesn't have to be the face of every single story. You know, Facebook used to allow you to change the photo with a story before you posted it which they've discontinued, unfortunately. But that was a very useful tool because that would allow you to share a story and not put Trump's photo on it. If the if the photo editor had chosen a Trump photo, you could switch it out and put another photo on it. Because I do think, and we've seen this on your Facebook page, people get tired of seeing seeing his damn face all the time. And so there's a there's got to be a little more thought put into which photo you choose. And every photo shouldn't be a photo of Trump with a political story. The political story of our times is not just Donald Trump. It's all of the other people who are being affected by what's happening and all of the people who are fighting against it as well, I would say. That's right. The people who are being affected, that's important. And it's important to see people affected and that they are affected. That decisions made by the President of the United States can have the incredible effects on people's lives and many people's lives, on whether children are starving in parts of the world, uh, on whether people are being bombed in parts of the world. This is really important. You need to look at the effects of political acts, not just the actor, but the effects of the acts, because actors have effects and actions have effects. And, you know, unless you're talking about what power does, not just say, well, this is, here's the powerful guy who did this action, and you name the action from the perspective of the powerful actor. Very wrong to not point out what the effects are on victims, what the effects are on ordinary people, 
what the effects are on people in other parts of the world and so on, because uh, power has effects all over the place. And to just talk about the person who has the power, who is using the power, who is the powerful actor, ignores the effects of that power. And that's morally irresponsible. Our last point here, for today at least, I'm sure we'll have many more in the future, is to defang the Friday dump. We only have a minute or so here, so we'll make this one quick. But the Friday dump is when politicians usually, or corporations, dump really bad news late on a Friday or maybe going into a holiday because everybody knows that people tend to read and consume less news on those days. And so you use the Friday dump to essentially bury bad news and by and large, the media goes along with it. Most recently, Trump dumped the big climate report. His administration put together a climate report saying it's really bad and we're all going to die unless we do something about it. And they dumped it into the Thanksgiving weekend, hoping that nobody would see it. There was a bit of a backlash against that. And there were stories that ran on Sunday and stories that were still coming out on Monday. But by and large, every Friday, especially a holiday Friday, you'll see a bunch of bad news get dumped out there. And our proposal is that when someone tries to dump bad news on a Friday, you save it till Monday and you tell or Sunday and you tell the whole world about it and you tell them that they try to dump it on a Friday. Right. And we ought to have a name for this. And I think the Friday dump is maybe not the best word, uh, although it's not a bad one. Uh, you know, it's an attempt to hide facts. And it's the Monday revelation of the Friday dump mm -hmm. that's important. Or the Sunday revelation. That is, uh, you should have as features... Uh, Sunday revelations and Monday and Monday yeah. revelations. Or you could say the Friday dump is going to be the Monday bump. <laughs> right. <laughs>